John Main's Journey of Prayer. John Main was born in London in 1926, Irish parents. Uh, the family roots were in Ballinskellig's County Kerry in Ireland. He was educated by the Jesuits at Stamford School. Uh, he was a chorister at Westminster Choir School. Then they would go back to Ireland occasionally for holidays, but really brought up in England. He was very close to his family. They were a strong, loving family, very humorous, slightly wild, enjoyed each other's company immensely and remained very close always. Immediately he left school, he became a trainee journalist on a London paper. He used to do all sorts of reports, like writing reports on concerts or football matches. Then the war came, I think 1943, he joined the Royal Signals, was attached to a unit that went ahead of the advancing Allied troops in occupied Europe. The job of his particular group of soldiers was to identify enemy positions where they were sending out uh, signals. The work of trying to identify where the signals were coming from and then getting in there was greatly helped by the invention of the quartz crystal, which you put in and it makes it much easier to identify where the signal's coming from. And he used this image much later in his life when he was writing about prayer to describe how we get onto the wavelength of the mind of Christ. We pick up this signal and tune ourselves into it. Contemporary use of a metaphor to describe prayer. He survives the war. It was after the war, he came back, of course, to England. He joined the Canons Regular of the Lateran and spent a year as a novice uh, down in Cornwall and then was sent to Rome to study. He didn't have the happiest memories of that period. He found it very repressive. It was the kind of church, the kind of religious life that he came to really renounce and reject and felt was dehumanizing. And, but he stuck it out for some time and then finally realized that it wasn't for him. So he left and came back to London. And so then he studied law at Trinity College in Dublin. And then he decided to travel. He joined the British Foreign Service, went to study Chinese at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And then he was sent to Malaysia, to Kuala Lumpur, which then was in a state of insurgency, fighting the communists. Attached to the governor general's office, as a Chinese translator. One day, he was sent to, on a sort of little diplomatic mission to a place called the Pure Life Society, which was then some way outside of Kuala Lumpur. Now it's uh, in, the, in the busy suburbs of it. He was asked to go to visit an Indian monk called Swami Satyananda, who the British had made a justice of the peace for his work in bringing about reconciliation among the different racial groups in Malaysia. Also, he had started this Pure Life Society, which included an orphanage for children who were victims of the war. He was bringing up children from different religious and racial backgrounds in a spirit of, of harmony. Went out to visit this monk, delivered his message and thanks and the letter, and then the conversation came a little more free and they began to talk about the spiritual basis of this monk's life and work. He began to realize that he was in the presence of a very holy man, a man of deep 
interiority and deep inner life, as well as a man very generously and creatively involved in social work. And so the conversation moved on to prayer, and the monk asked him, are you a prayerful man, Mr. Mayne, a religious man? He said, yes, I am. I, I pray. I'm a Catholic. In fact, I go to Mass every day, and I pray. And the monk said, well, how do you pray? Probably a very important question in the history of this tradition. John Mayne, or Douglas Mayne as he was then, explained how he prayed, and he described basically the kind of mental prayer that he would have learnt, and most of us here would have learnt as children. Remember, he was educated by the Jesuits. He described this once as the prayer of contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication, CTS. Basically, those forms of prayer, liturgical and mental prayer and devotional prayer. And the monk listened to this very respectfully and said, it's wonderful to meet a man of spirituality. Then he began to speak about his own understanding of the prayer of the heart which he called meditation. And he described in a verse from the Upanishads that struck Father John very deeply, that the spirit of the one who created the universe dwells within the human heart and in silence is loving to all. The spirit of the one who creates the universe dwells within the human heart and in silence is loving to all. John Mayne was deeply moved by these words, partly because they resonated with his own Christian faith, the creator and the indwelling of the spirit, and also because he felt these words were being spoken by someone who knew the meaning of them, who had lived the meaning of them. They spoke a little bit more, and the monk explained how, in their way of meditation, they would move from the head to the heart, letting go of thoughts, words, imagination, and coming into the silence, the stillness of the heart. And that they did this with a very simple practice of repeating a word or verse continually during the time of the meditation. Again, John Main was struck deeply by this in two ways, partly because of the um, authenticity with which the monk was speaking, and partly because it resonated with his own tradition of interior prayer, repetitive prayer, the rosary, and other forms of repetition as a way of coming to deeper prayer. But at the same time, he knew it was something different. There was a radical simplicity here that he hadn't encountered before, and a clarity of a discipline. And so he said to the monk, as I told you, I'm a, I'm a, a Christian, could you teach me to meditate? And the monk said, well, of course, you'll be a better Christian if you do it. But he said, I can only teach you on one condition, and that is if you're serious about it. He was a busy man. He wasn't going to waste his time on somebody who was just going to waste his time. John Mayne said, well, what do you mean by serious? He said, well, by serious, I mean that you will meditate every day, in the morning for half an hour and in the evening for half an hour. But you can come and meditate with me once a week, and if you have any questions, I'll be happy to discuss them, answer them, or whatever. So, for about two years, this is what John Main did. He was a very disciplined person in his personal life, organized, and that's probably why he liked monastic life, because it was very regular, and he was a regular kind of guy. So, he introduced meditation into his life, and once a week he would go and meditate with 
his teacher. And in the Gethsemane talks, those talks he gave at the Abbey of Gethsemane, he said that he would sometimes ask the monk, so how long is this going to take? Now what's going to happen next? And the monk would just say, say your mantra. And in a talk that John Main gave shortly before he died, he remembers this very early introduction to meditation. And he says on this talk, he said, these are probably the most useful and wisest words I've ever heard about prayer. Say your mantra. So very much enriched in his spiritual life, John Main returned to England. I think he wasn't all that excited about working for the British Empire, being an Irishman at heart, but he returned to England, in fact returned to Ireland, went back to his university where he'd studied law, was appointed professor of international law very soon afterwards. There he enjoyed university life, he enjoyed being close to his family, helping to raise his sister's children, being very organized and also a lover of life. He said he would, maybe exaggerating a little bit, he said he would do all his university work by 10 o'clock in the morning and then devoted himself to pleasure, like going to the races and concerts and uh, walking. And he, he loved life very much. And I think this love of life is the key to understanding why he became a monk. And then, in 1958, he joined the Benedictine Monastery of Ealing Abbey in London. So what led him to become a monk? Clearly, as a very young man after the war, he felt a call to religious life of some kind and didn't find it in the form that he, he first entered it. But the seed of that calling, of vocation, was there. What generated it probably was the death of a nephew of his, a young boy of 12, who suffering from a brain tumor. He accompanied the boy and his sister, the boy's mother, and the family during very traumatic and painful illness. As a result of that, he was sent back to the, the very deep questions of the meaning of life. With a child who dies at the age of 12, you ask, what is the meaning of life? And this led him to become uh, a monk. So he came to Ealing and still integrating the meditation into his daily life and daily mass. And when he came to the monastery, he looked forward to the opportunity to speak about this with a Christian monk. When he spoke about his prayer life with uh, his novice master, he was a little disappointed, to put it mildly, when the monk told him, I don't think this is a Christian way of prayer that you're doing, but maybe God had some plan in using it to bring you to the monastery, but now you should give it up. So that's not what he was expecting to hear. So this was 1958, remember, this was even before the Beatles started to meditate. So meditation was very much associated in the Christian mind with something oriental and non-Christian. So in obedience, uh, he did this, he gave up meditation. And in the Gethsemane talks, he describes how this was like the beginning of an inner desert. But uh, he was a positive and joyful man, and he, of course, continued to pray in the other ways. Prayer was always a major part, I mean, the center of his life. And as a monk, he prayed in different forms, and he loved all these different forms of prayer. But he had lost this prayer of the heart, which he had learned in the East. He hadn't yet got the means to connect it 
to his own Christian tradition. So then he came here to Saint Anselmo in Rome to study theology. He was here during the heady days of the beginning of the Vatican Council. He was very enthusiastic about the changes taking place in the mind and mentality of the church. Then he returned to England, was, was ordained. And actually just before he was ordained was when I first met him. I was a boy in the school at St. Benedict's we were told that there was a new religion teacher going to take us to the beginning of the term and we had destroyed our previous religion teacher given him a nervous breakdown and so we were looking forward to doing the same with this new teacher who was called brother john so he was only a brother so we could really do what we liked with him but as soon as he walked into the room we could see that this was a man of great you know self-possession confidence and you know, if he'd been able to deal with insurgent communists in the Malaysian jungle, uh, he'd be able to deal with a few schoolboys in West London. So his uh, gift, I think, for, for teaching children was, as he said, treat them as if they are adults, but never forget that they're children. Uh, he was ordained. He became the deputy headmaster of the school immediately. He was in the background of my school years. And then in 1969... He was sent to St. Anselm's Abbey in Washington, D.C. to do some study. There have been various things going on. But very quickly was asked to become headmaster of the school. He took over the school, as he said rather dramatically. He said, you know, the monks were all leaving to get married. Nobody else was getting married in those days, but except monks wanted to get married. The boys were all smoking pot or running wild. There was a financial crisis. He brought things into order and became a very successful headmaster and a successful figure. And one day, the abbot said to him, John, we have a young man, a student, who's just come back from the East. He's been staying in ashrams and Buddhist monasteries, and he's full of stuff about meditation. Could you speak with him? Because he's asking, is there anything like this in Christianity? So John Mayne met with him and listened to this young man who was truly seeking God and trying to seek God at that depth of experience that had been opened up for him by his exposure to the contemplative wisdom of the East. That was a turning point, a second great turning point for John Mayne. Because in wanting to guide this young seeker respectfully and at the same level of depth, he was led back to study the roots of his own tradition. And the first point of call on this search into his own tradition was Augustine Baker, the great 17th century English Benedictine. And in Augustine Baker, he read about the prayer aspirations, repeated prayers that would form part of the inner life of the monk and of other Christians. Baker refers back to Cassian as the origin of this form of aspiratory prayer. And so John May went back to Cassian, to the 9th and 10th conference of Cassian, and there in the 10th conference he remembered and recognized the same method of prayer, prayer of the heart, the mantra. Cassian calls it the formula that he had learnt some years before when he was in Malaysia in the East. 
As I think you may have the impression already, John Main had a quick mind and also a decisive mind. Once he had seen something, he acted on it. He could wait for a long time, patiently, but when he saw it, he acted. And so he began to meditate again himself. And I actually went out to see him just about this time on some personal business. So he was now meditating again. And he would walk back from the school where he was headmaster, back to the monastery at midday for the midday office, and to meditate. So he was now meditating three times a day, in the morning before the morning prayer, midday, and in the evening after Vespers. So I had the good fortune to speak with him at this time, and it was in one of those conversations that he spoke to me about meditation, quite unexpectedly. And what he said made a huge impact on me. He didn't give a long talk about it, he just spoke about meditation in a few light words. And this is how I think tradition happens. Just sort of a very light touch at the right moment. It's all the question of timing, isn't it? Timing and receptivity. At that moment, it hit me hard, but I didn't understand what he was saying. Intellectually, it made no sense to me at all. I was on an intellectual quest for spiritual truth. It didn't seem to make any sense to let go of your thoughts, words, and images. I didn't know what that meant. But at the other level of my heart, I knew that what he was saying was totally authentic and true. And not only that, but it awakened in me something new that I hadn't felt before, and I think this is something all of you can identify with, that was a longing, a hunger, for the experience of this new revelation, of what this meant in our own experience. And that's a phrase that John Main came to use characteristically in all of his teaching. It sets him in a different category from many other monastic teachers of this period because he was not only describing what he saw, in fact, he recognized that what you see, what you experience, what you find out through meditation is really impossible to put into words. You can use poetry, you can use photographs, you can use theology, you can use all sorts of ways of expression to try to express it, but ultimately that's not the point. So you will not find long, beautiful descriptions of states of prayer in John Main. What you will find is a very persuasive presentation of a tradition and of a conviction that meditation is something that is universal and that we enter into in your own experience. That's his phrase, in your own experience. And this takes you right back to the heart of the 10th Conference of Cassian. Cassian says, magistra experientia, experience is the teacher. If you don't do it, you won't understand it. And isn't that what the Swami said to him? I can only teach you if you do it, if you open yourself to this experience. And isn't that what we say today to people who come to meditation groups or uh, retreats and so on? You, we have to do it, experience it in order to know it. So, he stayed in, in Washington for another few years. Now, meditation was becoming more and more powerfully the center of his life. 
and the meaning of his own monastic journey. And then he came back and persuaded or offered the idea to the abbot and the community of setting aside one of the houses on the grounds as a house for a group of young laymen who would come and live for six months, sharing in the life of the monastery, but also developing their own practice of meditation in a disciplined way and meditating three times a day. And I went to see him. I was leaving a job at investment bank at the time, and I went to see him on a cold January evening. He was alone in this house because it hadn't opened yet, and he was telling me his, his vision, what it was about. And I could, again, not fully understand it, but this seemed to connect with that hunger that I had had awakened some years before when I heard about meditations. So I changing my job, I can take six months and come and learn to meditate finally because I wasn't doing any meditation. And he was a little bit discouraging and he probably thought I wasn't ready for it. But anyway, I joined and it was a very unique experience of monastic living, parallel to the institutional form of the monastic life, which lacked meditation. Some of the monks came over and meditated with us occasionally, but not very often. But they supported it, thought it was a good thing, and they all hoped that we would be vocations to that form of monastic life. The only one was me, and I didn't stay very long in that particular monastery. It was a transformative experience, because at this level, where we were, we were also living the tradition. So you had the institution and the tradition sort of in parallel. But that creates some tension. Institutions can be very suspicious of tradition. They don't mind their own traditions, their own customs, their own habits, but tradition itself can be quite threatening to institutional life. So there were inevitable complications there. And then, as I said, he received an invitation to start a new form of Benedictine monastic life, integrating meditation with the office, the mass, the prayer, and also making the teaching of meditation central to the life, the work of the monastery. The work of the monastery was not to run a school, not to run a parish, not to make chocolates, or even to write books, but to teach in meditation. So, in September 1977, the abbot of Ealing drove us to Heathrow, we took a plane to Montreal, we got out of Montreal, pouring rain, the Bishop of Montreal was there to, to greet us and drove us to what was to become our first monastery in this experiment. And it was the whole of the monastic institution cut back to its roots, pruned to its essentials. But the essential, the essence of the, the life was there. The integration of the Opus Dei with the Oratio Pura. And the hospitality, we didn't have any guest rooms, some of the lay community from London came out to join us. Monks from other parts of North America began to visit us. The abbot primate here from Rome came out to see him, invited him actually to start a new Benedictine congregation, which he would have done if he had lived longer. But it was quite new and difficult to categorize, difficult to pigeonhole. John Main's genius, really, and his courage, his prophetic insight was very powerful. In 1980, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. All the evidence was that it had been caught very quickly, but it returned at the beginning of 1982 and then metastasized 
He died in December of 1982.